You're listening to Living Healthy Longer by the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging. So I don't know if I've ever shared with you that I always wanted to be at CSU as a kid. Um, so I would come to gymnastics camp every summer here, end up at Pingree Park. And I just knew that CSU was this really special place. Even as a kid, I didn't even really understand what college was when I knew that I wanted to be here. But I didn't end up going here to school. But being here on faculty is like a fulfilled dream that I've, I can remember having it at like eight years old. That is Dr. Karen Hamilton, a professor of health and exercise science at Colorado State University and one of our associate directors here at the Center for Healthy Aging. Before Karen made her way to CSU as a faculty member, she got her introduction to research by working in critical care nutrition, where she provided nutrition support to some really sick or injured individuals, such as burn victims and transplant recipients. And I was really fortunate then to right place, right time to get involved with some research um, with a couple of different physicians, one of each institution that kind of just brought me on board to test these overarching hypotheses about energy balance and healing from these events. This was back in the early 90s. So we didn't really know much about how much could we improve healing simply by meeting um, energy needs, sufficient calories, uh, sufficient macronutrients. And so we did, in fact, find that we could improve recovery from trauma, from burns. We could um, shorten hospital stay duration with bone marrow transplants. I didn't stay in those positions long enough to know if there were any long, long long-term benefits like the transplants being permanent solutions to the leukemias. But in these critical care settings, the patients could recover from the standpoint of healing or their infections going away or the transplant being successful, at least acutely, but they could barely stand. And the road to recovering strength and the ability to do you know, activities of daily living was really long for them. Even in my uh, like five-year period of time there, I could see that that was going to be slow going and it was going to limit their ability to return to quote unquote normal life. So I hadn't until my conversation with you thought about kind of that common thread between those early years in my first career to what my lab is doing now. And so we're still very interested in the response to energy balance at the cellular level and how tissues, including skeletal muscle and whole organisms, respond to something we now call energetic stress. This concept of energetic stress describes habits that upset the normal energy balance or the homeostasis of our cells. Stressors can be things like a depletion or an excess of nutrients in the body or habits of over or under exercising, as well as lots of other metabolic processes. In Karen's research, she studies stress responses that are shown to be beneficial by extending health span and maintaining optimal function with age. In this episode, we talked to Karen specifically about musculoskeletal aging, or the ways that muscles, bones, tendons, and cartilage all change as we get older. 
We bring back concepts that you've heard in past episodes, such as the hallmarks of aging and how they affect muscle dysfunction, as well as health span, which is the period of life in which you're healthy and disease-free. We talk about interventions that have come out of Karen's research that attempt to preserve musculoskeletal function with age, and we leave you with Karen's tips for healthy muscle aging throughout the lifespan. I hope you enjoy. I'm your host, Hannah Hallisker, and this is Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging at Colorado State University. So I kind of want to back up a little bit, start from the very beginning of describing what does a healthy muscle look like and what does an aging muscle look like? What are the characteristics associated with both of them? That's a really good question. So I think historically there's been this word called sarcopenia. So sarco literally means muscle. Sarco is um, a, a word part used to describe the contractile apparatus in muscle allows muscle to contract and which allows us to be able to move. Um, so that's the sarcopenia means too little of. So that fancy word altogether just means muscles that get smaller. And so historically, we thought that was really um, the bad part about muscle aging, that muscles would get smaller. We now know that it's, it's much more complicated than that. Um, we know that by trying to do things to keep muscle from getting smaller, um, to make muscle mass stay the same. And that doesn't necessarily always um, rectify the age-related decline in muscle function. So we now know that another important piece to that is something I referred to earlier, muscle energetics. So your muscles are both the biggest consumers and the biggest producers of energy in the body. And um, with age, we know that they're not as good at making that energy. So the mitochondria are the organelles within muscle that are the energy producers, the biggest energy producers. They can still do it as we age, but they they just change in how efficiently they do it and how much they can make and at the right time. So what we think is that that's really the key. Um, maintaining muscle metabolism will help to maintain muscle function. And muscle function with aging, you can kind of boil down to two things. The muscle needs to get us around contract and, and facilitate locomotion so that we can do all of those activities of daily living. I guess another important muscle that is not a locomotor muscle is our diaphragm. And we know that it needs to maintain um, activity with aging as well. But then also just maintain metabolism. So one of the chronic diseases associated with aging is, is a metabolic disease. So type 2 diabetes is a um, all too common uh, thing that comes on with aging, sometimes even in the absence of obesity. So maintaining muscle function helps to um, prevent uh, those metabolic diseases of aging too. So back to a, a simple answer to your simple, qu simple question, what does aging muscle look like? It can look smaller. It can look less functional because it's not as strong. It can't move us across the room and it doesn't support energetic demand as well. Right. So what is the connection between 
energetic stress and muscle aging? Good question. So um, we are interested in in lots of different tissues, but because skeletal muscle is one of the most energetically active tissues in the body, that it ends up being really interesting for us when we think about energetic stress. So you can think of energetic stress as being overnutrition or being undernutrition, meaning um, stresses that lead to obesity or maybe macronutrient imbalance um, or, of course, starvation and malnutrition. That's not really what we study. We study more these long-known approaches that seem to increase the lifespan of animals in the lab, like flies and worms and mice and things that um, are useful for us, but they don't uh, and we're privileged to use them, but they don't, uh, doesn't necessarily always translate to humans. And the most well-known example would be calorie restriction. So of all those little species that I just uh, named, we know that if we restrict daily energy intake starting in young adulthood, um, by 30 or 40% without, and this is an important part of it, without imposing protein malnutrition, that all of those species live longer. And not only do they live longer, they're healthier. Their health span or the number of years that they spend free of the burden of chronic disease um, are also increased. So muscle is part of that. We know that... Um, as an organism ages, if we, again, calorie restrict them, if we continue on that example, their muscle stays healthier. It stays more um, energetically young, meaning their mitochondria make ATP, make energy like they did when they were young. Um, they stay stronger. If you just look at the activity of, of the species of the um, laboratory models, they stay more active, they choose more activity. So just from observations, you can tell that the response to this energetic stress, which is sensed at the cellular level, um, is a beneficial one in terms of maintaining function with age. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious, what is, you're, you're saying cellular level. So what is the root of muscle dysfunction as we get older? I know it's something at the cellular level. It is. I mean, you could talk about it from the cellular level all the way through the whole organism, organismal level. Um, if we could somehow freeze frame age, we can't do that, obviously, you know, just stop the clock. Um, but impose the external stress of inactivity. Inactivity, chronic inactivity by itself would start looking like muscle aging. Um, if we could keep activity constant, but then let the clock go, aging itself imposes kind of that same phenotype. And then the, the problem there is that those two things sort of get superimposed. So with aging, because we're aging from the day we're born, right? Um, the, the phenotype of muscle or the, the way muscle works, both at the cellular, the whole tissue and the organi organismal level, um, it starts declining. For humans, and this is 
a big generalization and independent of activity or physical activity sometime in the 40s or 50s. Um, this could be evident in the laboratory. Probably wouldn't be noticeable to a person until their 50s. Um, so, so at both kind of the whole organism level, and then your question was at the cellular level, what are some of the things that drive muscle aging besides time, age itself? And they, there are known drivers of, of aging itself, and this applies to muscle as well. So some of them would be um, chronic inflammation. Um, one of the ones that my lab studies is, is how cells adapt to stress. Do they have the ability to have this um, range of something called a, adaptive homeostasis? When we're young, that range is big. So if there's a stress, we have a big range to be able to respond and adapt to that stress. And then that range just gets compressed with age so that we don't have nearly as much ability to um, to return to normal, to adjust. And so stress adaptation is something we're really interested in. Um, damage. So stress causes damage. So if we're unable to resist or repair from that damage, then it starts to accumulate. So in particular, my lab is interested in um, accumulation of damage to proteins in the muscle that might affect both how the muscle contracts with age, how it generates energy with age. Others are really interested in something called um, epigenetic modifications with age. So not necessarily epigenetics refers to modifications to the genes or the proteins that genes are wound around um, that change the way those genes are expressed, but it doesn't necessarily mean the sequence in your genes. So aging impacts epigenetics. Um, so these are all things that, that can drive age. There's also kind of a fancy word called senescence, which sometimes people use that synonymous with age. Those of us who study aging use the word senescence to refer to um, cells kind of wearing out cells that used to have the ability to divide, to replicate. And they, to do that, they have to enter this, it's something called the cell cycle. And senescence is exit from that cell cycle, um, cessation of cell division. And that doesn't sound like that big of a deal, but those cells then start contributing to some of the other drivers of aging. They contribute to inflammation. They send out bad signals. And that's really the point, um, that all of these drivers of aging feed off of one another, which is bad news and good news, right? So the bad news is if my cells become this senescent um, they then trigger inflammation. They also contribute, trigger, um, lead to epigenetic modifications. I haven't mentioned the driver that my lab really focuses on called um, maintenance of protein homeostasis or proteostasis. So all of these drivers are interconnected. And one going wrong can kind of lead to all the others going wrong. But the good side of that is it gives us some really promising targets. So 
if we target one of those drivers of aging because of their interconnectedness with all of the other drivers, it's really likely that all of the others will start to improve as well. So good news and bad news. Do we know when that muscle decline begins? Like, do we do we have like a large threshold sense of the age when muscle starts to decline in humans? Yeah, we th- we think that it is again dependent on how active you've remained up till this point, sometime in your forties or fifties. I don't think that many forty-year-olds. Um, would say, oh man, I just really feel like I'm not as strong as I used to be. Or it's more evident to the individual, probably in their late 40s to early 50s. Mm-hmm. Are there so so you study energetic stress? You you study stress resistance and muscle in your lab. Um, what does that What does that look like in studies? What, what, like, tell me about some of the methods you might use to study that in muscles. That's a good question. So um, we don't do as many things as we would like to do. So um, you asked a question earlier about drivers of aging, um, including muscle aging. Um, that's kind of what we focus on. So we're really interested in this um, this notion that if cells, including all of the cells that comprise a muscle, are better able to respond and adapt to stresses, that that's going to make them better able to maintain um, metabolism over um, the lifespan and also to be able to prevent that accumulation of damage. Um, particularly damage to proteins. So we use measurements of um, mitochondrial function. So how well are those energetic systems still working with age? We use measures of um, protein turnover. The idea being if there's damaged proteins and we can degrade them, get rid of them, and then resynthesize new ones, we can protect the proteins that we have. That's called proteome maintenance. And that should also lead to um, better function. So if you put those two things together, what we're really interested in is, is maintenance of this mitochondrial um, proteome. If we protect the proteins that make our mitochondria continue to make ATP um, through the lifespan, can that promote increases in health span? We also make measurements of, of whole body function. So th- theoretically, if the musculoskeletal system, and I've really just focused on muscle here, but at some point I should talk about it's a whole system. Um, if that musculoskeletal system works better with aging, then you should have an organism that moves better. So we also make measurements of movement. One thing we'd like to add to our arsenal and hope to do that with some colleagues across campus are to look at the muscles themselves and say, do they produce more force when they contract? Meaning, do they do one of their their other, I kind of boiled it down to two jobs. We measure the energetics. We'd like to pair that with, do the muscles contract like they're supposed to so that movement can happen better? 
Mm-hmm. What is so so muscles is just one one part of this larger system. What is the whole musc- musculoskeletal system? Yes, yes. Mouthful of a word. It is a mouthful of the word. So one of the things that we hypothesize is that our our knowledge that rapidly translates from the lab to humans has um, has been slow for a number of reasons. And, and one of those is that up till recently, we haven't really had a good laboratory model. And by model, I mean something that mimics or models human musculoskeletal decline with aging. Usually what people use are really nicely controlled um, situations where they can um, take the weight off of muscle in the lab meaning make it so that it looks more like a sedentary muscle, um, either by immobilizing it or um, just not letting it contract anymore. Or they've used some models where they might impose infection or injury. Or, but, but none of them really model what we see in humans. So I've only described what aging muscle kind of looks like, but rarely would you see this muscle aging phenotype without also seeing joints degenerate. Um, Particularly in females, you would also see um, loss of bone density, bone strength, also males, but more so in females. And then often you see there's this weird and very understudied interface between the tendons and the muscles that we know far too little about. There's some great groups in the world, one kind of growing on campus um, that's starting to handle or understand this myotendinous junction better. And we know that with aging, it starts um, not functioning as well either. It's important because that's how we attach um, skeletal muscle to bone and that's how locomotion happens. So All of those things need to work in concert with one another. They're all susceptible to the same drivers of aging. And we also know they can communicate between each other. They can communicate to distant tissues beyond the scope of this talk. But we now know that kind of muscle and brain talk to one another. So to study muscle aging all by itself probably gives an incomplete picture of what happens when you're then looking at an aging musculoskeletal system. So one of the things we've been working on really hard is to characterize a, a better preclinical model to help us to know what how to solve musculoskeletal aging in people. Mm-hmm. Have there been any interventions that have come out of the research you've done? Yes. Um, Yes. So we're currently, um, I'll have to back up a little bit. So if we think back to kind of drivers of aging that I talked about before, inflammation, stress adaptation, preventing accumulation of damage, um, preventing cell senescence, um, promoting energetics. Like I said, they're all connected. If you improve one, you probably improve the others as well. We also know that there's some um, regulators in cells that kind of have their fingers in all of those processes. So a tiny molecular biology lesson here, you've got DNA, you turn the DNA into messenger RNA, 
and that's called transcription. And then you turn the messenger RNA into hopefully functional proteins. And so transcriptional regulators, things that regulate that, turning a gene into an mRNA. Um, we know that there's some that have uh, regulation over all aspects of this homeostatic adaptation to stress or adaptive homeostasis, I called it before. So we worked with the National Institutes of Health to see if, if we just use one approach to, to target this regulator of all those processes. It's called NERF2. I also kind of liked it because I used to love Nerf balls when I was growing up. <laughs> if you target Nerf2, can you s simply increase lifespan of an animal model? Um, a laboratory model? And the answer was yes, um, you can. Not to the degree or to the extent or to the, with the magnitude that, say, calorie restriction or some of the genetic um, mutants that we use to understand um, roles of genes in aging did. But, but it was promising. Um, and interestingly, you can target this regulator called NERF2 with um, things that come from plants. Um, both plants that we eat all the time, like onions and green peppers and celery, and also some plants that are um, really important parts of, say, traditional Chinese medicine. And so long story short, um, we've kind of done a series of experiments to understand if cells themselves, like muscle cells growing in a dish, adapt better to stresses um, through this model that we've put a lot of time into developing um, that we think pretty closely mimics human musculoskeletal aging. We haven't published this yet, but targeting um, that regulator, NERF2, seemed to improve some pretty neat aspects of musculoskeletal function. Um, so those are still preclinical studies. We are actually recruiting for a human study for the same um, same compound targeting that um, transcription factor NERF2. So, so it's pretty exciting to be able to see something go from a dish to, to people. Fingers Does crossed. Does this happen to be your knee osteoarthritis study or is that completely different? It is the knee osteoarthritis study, yes. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? I sure can. So first of all, I'll say no thanks to COVID. Um, it won't be nearly as big of a trial. It as um, as we wanted it to be. But it, it, what we're doing right now is still just a, a pilot study um, to get proof of concept and to demonstrate feasibility so that we can do a bigger trial, which we're already um, writing the proposal for. So we've been recruiting um, older adults, such as myself, between the ages of 50 and 65. Um, that age range being, we wanted to make sure that we were because I said before, aging itself causes this musculoskeletal decline. And we really wanted to know, um, are we targeting some of the drivers of the early stages of this musculoskeletal decline? So people with knee osteoarthritis, um, we've been enrolling in a study to quite simply see if we see some of the same things we saw in our preclinical model. Can we see improved metrics of, of gait or locomotion? Can we see improvements in bone strength? Can we see um, improvements in muscle energetics? 
Okay. Yes. And doesn't this involve, because I remember the last time I had a call with you, you were going to get a biopsy. (laughs) (laughs) It was supposed to be this morning. It didn't, didn't quite pan out. We have a very, very small team. And so if, if one person can't make it, then the whole experiment shuts down. We have a small team because we can only have a certain number of people in the lab at any given time because of COVID. And that's been why it's hard to recruit for this study too. Um, Yes. Yes, it's hard to recruit for a lot of different studies right now. Yes, it is. So, but the biopsy part of it, is that like a before and after kind of thing? It is. This is kind of a classic um, experimental design called a pre-test, post-test, placebo-controlled design. So we make measurements of gait, um, how you walk, your balance, um, standing to sitting, of muscle strength, of muscle mitochondrial function, so that's the energetics piece, um, and of bone density before and after um, 12 weeks of taking this uh, plant-based treatment or placebo. So you get randomized to one of those groups. And what's the name of this plant-based? Is it a plant-based phytochemical, I think is what it was called? Yeah, yeah. So phyto means plant and chemical. Okay. Yeah. So a phytochemical is is something that comes from a plant. So the the ingredients of it that I don't know that you've heard of, but this is kind of intriguing. So one of them is called carnosol or carnosoic acid. And if you are a lover of Italian food, you probably get quite a bit of it because it's in very high concentrations in rosemary. Um, another one is called with a furin a, this is not something that you and I would get from our foods. Um, but it is probably the most common in my limited understanding of traditional, um, Chinese and Ayurvedic medicine. Um, one of the most commonly used ones, um, comes from a plant called ashwagandha. Um, And then the third is a compound called luteolin. And you can get luteolin from peppers and celery and onions and regular things that we would eat when we make a nice vegetable stew or something. The really cool thing about about this um, approach is that each of those compounds is in very, very, very low concentrations, which if you gave it alone and then made some of our measurements or... Um, looked to see if that that transcription factor NERF2 was activated, it wouldn't be. Um, it would almost be imperceptible that they were there. Uh, but the three work together synergistically. So if all three are there, then you get this very robust activation of this transcription factor, but with very, very low doses of the three, which um, guess when you step back to think about why we're interested in targeting these drivers of aging, ideally you would start treating or targeting them before you had any age-related decline at all, which could mean that, you know, down in the future, you might be starting some of these treatments at 40, 45 years old. So you want something that's going to be very, very safe, almost imperceptible so that if you're going to take it for the rest of your life or in some kind of pulsed fashion for the rest of your life, that the potential for benefit far, far outweighs any potential for harm. And we think that's the case with these. This sounds like something that, you know, if it went through like the approval process and all that I could like eventually walk into my drugstore and find it with the vitamins. Yes. Like it sounds like that 
level of safety. Yes. Right now you actually can, but you would probably, yeah, you probably would find each of those things I just mentioned in capsules that give you a far higher dose with each one. So again, we're using much, much lower doses than, than you would get from a a vitamin cottage kind of um, product. Okay. I'm glad you brought that up. What would you say is the greater significance of the research that you do? Like you take yourself out of the lab and how does this affect people? I feel like that's probably a loaded question. It is. It's harder to say from just my work. I can think of it more as like part of almost everything I do is with a team of people because that's why science is fun to me. Um, so if I start thinking about actually the, the study I just described to you where we use this NERF2 activator in a preclinical model, that's a team of people. That's me with the muscle. That's um, my very close collaborator who's a um, clinical uh, veterinary pathologist. She knows joints like nobody else. That's working with a young professor on campus looking at tendons and the musculoskeletal tendinous junction. That's with an engineer who focuses on bones. So I couldn't do that exciting study all by myself. So if I looked at just my impact, I would say, mm-hmm. right. My, I'd say the bigger impact of what I would do alone is help to train other scientists so they can go forth and multiply and do good things. But when we pull a big team like that together, or now through the Center for Healthy Aging, we're starting to pull even bigger teams of people together who are all um, joined together to focus on this idea of of increasing health span um, by uh, with social science approaches, with biological science approaches, with veterinary science approaches. That starts getting bigger. That impact gets bigger. Um, so one of the things that, that my lab is now going to get to be able to do with a number of others on campus all through um, affiliations at the Center for Healthy Aging is to do something that I, I think we've just been neglecting all along. So we learn so much from laboratory animal models. They help to give us um, very tight experimental control you know, worms in a dish and, and flies. We learn a lot about muscle function and about aging from them. But because we raise them in these really controlled environments and then we, and we're interested in things like adaptation to stress, if we compare that to the, the human uh, situation where they're, we're getting pounded with both environmental and internal stresses all the time that we've removed from our animal models, it's, it's no wonder that, that few things truly translate easily from the laboratory to, to the humans that we're hoping to help. So this effort will be to kind of establish a pipeline for not just us at CSU and the Center for Healthy Aging to use, but for other people um, interested in increasing health span. And that is to put this pipeline in place where we can um, answer really important molecular questions in cells and rapidly move um, through this translational spectrum that leverages humans' companion animals. So dogs 
live right by our side. Um, they're exposed to the same stresses. They have this really unique relationship between their body mass and their lifespan that makes it really predictable when they when their health span starts to drop off and their lifespan is is coming to an end. So they're a um, a predictable model. And probably the most important is they're susceptible to the very same diseases of chronic aging that people are susceptible to. And that's simply not the case with anything we can study in the laboratory. So when we want to try to understand musculoskeletal decline and we want to try to understand the interaction between muscle aging and brain aging, neurodegeneration, we should be looking to our companion dogs, um, both to improve their health span while they're aging and also to understand our own barriers to long health span. So I do think that collectively our group is going to make a big impact if we can make that pipeline of resources available to lots of other people that are attacking aging from lots of different sides. That was a long-winded I mean, hearing, answer. Yeah, but I'm, <laughs> I'm sitting here and I'm hearing you saying, you know, that team science is incredibly valuable <sighs> and also comparative aging, comparative medicine research is also incredibly valuable that this, you know, no one can work alone in their lab in a silo by themselves anymore. It's transdisciplinary research is kind of the way that research is moving and has been for a while. And then also just the comparative sense with the actual research that you're doing, looking into animal models to learn about humans. It's, it's so fascinating and just such a cutting edge thing. I think so. And you summed it up so much more succinctly than I did. (laughs) (laughs) I want to make sure that I ask you this before you hop off. This last question that I ask everyone who I've, I've interviewed on this podcast What's your best advice for healthy aging from your vantage point and the, what you research? I wonder how many people's answers are the same. You um, know, I'm, I'm starting to kind of see a trend. Okay. So I'm curious what you're going to say. To the best that you're able, stay active, stay active, keep moving your, your whole life. However, um, if you haven't been moving, haven't been physically active your whole life, don't think, eh, too late to start. Um, it's absolutely not too late to start. Um, depending on your um, current health and um, you know your abilities, it's probably very important to consult with um, your your physician as well as a fitness professional before you start on something for the very first time. But being physically active is is really the best kind of stress. I've been using the word stress a lot, but we know very well the beneficial adaptations to physical activity, and we know very well the negative adaptations to inactivity. So um, to whatever degree one can, making physical activity as routine as brushing your teeth or eating is is probably the best advice for, for healthy aging. I would say a positive attitude and um, taking good care of yourself, being a good consumer of, of your health is also a, an important thing to do too. I think we're on the cusp, on the crest of, of some pretty big breakthroughs in um, being able to even capitalize on a, a physically active lifestyle. A lot of what's looking the most promising in terms of adding to a healthy lifestyle another treatment or another 
um, secret bullet, all of those things seem to mimic what happens in response to physical activity. So um, that can be helpful down the road, particularly for folks who are like me, starting to get to where your your um, your body is telling you you can do a little bit less than what you really want to do or what you used to do. So I think there there are some promising steps forward um, in terms of being able to supplement that down the road, but a little too soon for prime time right now. Promising steps that you're the one working on in your lab. <laughs> one of the many people working on, yes. Yes, yes. Okay, well, I know you have to jet, so thank you so much for spending these last like 45 minutes with me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Center for Healthy Aging at CSU. Remember to follow us on social media at CSU Healthy Aging and visit our website at healthyaging.colostate.edu. We will see you next time.